Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. You're listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is with me as always. And if you're not a subscriber to DuckTerritory.com, first, my first question would be why not? Because you could join for as low as $1 for your first month. You get inside scoop, expert analysis. You get to read all the content on 24-7 Sports' entire network, not just our site, but everywhere. Uh, and then after you pay your first promo price and go to $9.90, you then get CBS All Access for free on top of your subscription, 10,000 shows, live sports, movies on demand, all commercial free with your subscription to DuckTerritory.com. So jump in on that today. Now, Eric, big basketball weekend for both the men and the women. We've also got some football news. We've also got a coaching hire news. Um, let's start with that. We'll, we'll go into basketball and the significance of the weekend for the men and the women second half of the show. But I think a lot of people want to know, um, Rod Chance, Oregon has made a coaching hire to coach the cornerback position at Oregon after the departure of Dante, uh, Dante Williams and almost at Dante Manning, the cornerback that signed with Oregon, but that's not the case. Um, I, I think this was the, in the hiring of Rod Chance, now Oregon has not made it official, but He's tweeted it out. He's got, Chris Ball has tweet, retweeted it. Uh, right. He's even gone out and seen Dante Manning with the staff in an Oregon uniform. So it's happened. It's just not been officially announced yet. Um, why? I have no idea. Uh, but nonetheless, I think this is the hire that made the most sense. And it, I want to hear your opinions before I, 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 I give you mine of why it makes the most sense for Oregon. Yeah, I love I love it. Um, you know, when you lose a, a coach like Dante Williams, who, let's be frank, you were never going to replicate the recruiting aspect of it. Not not on the short term, at least. Maybe, maybe over the course of a couple of years, you could piece together a, a group that could work towards the level of Dante Williams, just because he was that type of recruiting asset and you know one of the best nationally. But when you get a chance to somebody who's very familiar with the program, who's actually spent a year as a defensive analyst at Oregon just a couple of years ago under Mario Cristobal. He's obviously got extensive experience then working with Joe Salavea um, and Keith Hayward. Those are two coaches that are still on the staff, so I like that continuity perspective of it. And then he's just produced really well. Uh, you look at what Minnesota did in 2019. They, they improved in basically every single defensive passing statistic possible. Uh, they moved up from... 51st in passing yards to number nine last season. Um, they moved up uh, in terms of interceptions from number 63 to number 17. Um, they just saw, you know, a lot of improvement at that position group, and I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. And, you know, he's not the recruiter that Dante Williams is. You look at where he kind of stacks up nationally. He's, he's nowhere near top seven nationally, but he is somebody that has uh, had some success, especially with Minnesota the last couple of years. Um, recruiting in the Southeast. So uh, I, I like the hire. I like that they got it done quickly. I think that was important. Um, you know, you don't want this to linger too much, especially with spring practice starting with important months for the 2020 recruiting class coming in. And let's be honest here, 
you, you didn't want to have, you know, you had all these kids that signed in 2020, and Williams was responsible for quite a few of them. You wanted to get a replacement on staff relatively soon, so you didn't have any prospects that are sitting there kind of going like, oh boy, what, you know, who's going to be my position coach? Do I want to stick with Oregon? I think the fact that they got this done quickly uh, is a huge win for the staff. And like I said, I, li- I like what Chance represents. And again, he's also a younger coach. Um, and, and those kind of guys are, are typically willing to grind a little bit harder. Yeah, I, I think I, I'm really high on this because of, like you said, the continuity. This is a guy that has coached under crystal ball. So he knows going in that the expectation and that is that he's all gas, no breaks, essentially, to, to pull that phrase, 365 days out of the year, meaning you have to grind, you have to work hard every single day of this year. And, yeah, you get vacations and, and you get time away from the program, but when you are working, it, it, there's there's no coasting. There's, there's no, you know, dips and valleys and peaks and all of that. So he knows, A, the expectations of, already of the staff and he's done it already before so he's worked there before i think this is a guy that also when when he was hired by oregon he was the defensive coordinator at at southern utah an fcs program he has extensive you know experience as you know a higher up coach at, at the collegiate level yes not at the fbs level not at the power five level but it, it nonetheless, he still has that experience. That still counts for something. And so now you've you've got another coach who has a track record of coordinating and, and has experience building game plans and, and all of that and being in charge of a defense. I mean, that, that's invaluable. And then on top of that, he was a coach when he was at Oregon as a as an analyst. I mean he took a he took a leap of faith saying, Hey, I'm gonna give up my coordinator job at Southern Utah and go to Oregon to be an off-the-field analyst where I can't coach players and parlay that into a positional coaching job at Minnesota. And even then, at that, that at that time, you know there were a group of five schools saying, hey, maybe we need to look at Rod Chance to be a coordinator. It, it again happened this offseason when he was at Minnesota. He turned those down. He came to Oregon instead as a, as a position coach again. Uh, and, and the opportunity of... Coaching at Oregon, I think, look, there's hierarchies of football, and Oregon is much higher than Minnesota is in the pecking order of college football. And if he has success at Oregon, he's going to have more opportunities. And I think, look, the reality is, is we said it with Dante Manning, and I'm going to say it with Rod Chance, that if Oregon has success and the cornerback position is a player is a position that has a lot of that success in the next year, two, three years. People are going to come at Rod Chance. People are going to come maybe at a coach ahead of him, like a Keith Hayward or an Andy Avalos. And Chance could be a guy who either leaves the program for a promotion or stays and gets bumped up because someone else leaves. Now, I also want to say, I think Oregon is getting to the point where if you work at Oregon and you give the effort that's required of you on the recruiting trail, you can be an elite recruiter. Like Oregon's getting to that point now where it, it, it's more of just the effort needs to be put in because the brand at Oregon is so strong that you're going to be able to get into basically any home out there. Now, yes, Dante Williams is a special recruiter. and I'm not trying to downplay him that, but sure. when, when, when Ken Wilson was hired last season, uh, last off season to be, Oregon's outside linebackers coach. Did anyone think he was the top three recruiter in the Pac-12? Because he, because he was this past season. 
I mean, what, what, what about, what about Joe Salavea when he was hired? You know, he was 12th in the conference this past, 13th in the, in the conference this past season for 2020. Uh, in, in 2020, Alex Mirabal, an offensive line coach. FAU, where did he come from? Marshall? Um, Marshall, I don't yep. know if he was reared as this amazing recruiter and he was 12th in the conference in, in 2020. And, and you just want to look at maybe the 2021 class where it's early on. Yes. And you understand that, but look at the 2021 class in the Pac-12 and Keith Hayward, Jim Mastro, Joe Salavea, Alex Maribal are all ranked inside the top 10 in the conference. And yes, it's extremely early, but that just tells you that I think if, if, if Rod Chance comes to Oregon and puts forth the effort in recruiting, like I expect him to, and I'm sure Mario Cristobal is going to demand him to recruiting is not going to be an issue. No. And, and just a couple other things that we, we've said here that I think are, are, are important with chance. Just, I, I always like a guy who bets on himself. And I think that's exactly what chance did. I mean, it would have been easy to stay at Southern Utah, maybe a little longer as a, as a defensive coordinator and said, like you said, he took a chance, took a chance and really took a demotion in terms of, you know, at least in terms of what he's doing with a program by becoming a defensive analyst at Oregon. He then parlays that in one year to, an, you know, an assistant coaching position at an, at another Power Five school, and comes back and parlays that into a job at Oregon. So, you know, the trajectory there I think is very impressive in terms of going from, like we said, a defensive coordinating position at a lower level to then being a Power Five position coach. At, you know, following up a really one of you know one of the top position coaches in the country, and Dante Williams. Um, I always like guys that, that will bet on themselves and take some risks in terms of what they do professionally. I also think that this sets you up possibly for if, you know, and maybe we're transitioning into a different uh, part of the show here, but if Andy Avalos were to look to leave, um, you now have a couple of guys on the staff who at least have coordinating experience. And I'm not suggesting if, if Avalos were to leave and take this Colorado job, which I think we're going to talk about on this show, that you would promote Rod Chance without him really having much time in Oregon. I think that would be a huge jump. But it's also... I, like we established earlier, it's always nice having multiple guys who have experience doing things on the staff. And you now at least have a thing where, hey, you'd have a couple of internal candidates with experience leading a defense. And, and having a guy like Rod Chance on staff, I think, is certainly uh, beneficial from that regard. Because it may not be this offseason. It probably won't be, I don't think. But at some point here, Oregon is going to have to find a replacement at defensive coordinator. And having as many guys around the program with experience doing that will help. A, either one of them will take over that responsibility, or B, um, they'll be able to help kind of, uh, I guess, offset the load for whoever does replace Avalos when that happens down the line here. Yeah, now let's swing ourselves into that one. Andy Avalos over the weekend was kind of, uh, or late in the week of last week, was kind of brought up as a candidate for the Colorado job after Mel Tucker departed, and... Honestly, like, I don't think he's even close to maybe being one, two, three, or four in, in that pecking order. Um, he's still a relatively young coach. Yeah. And his rise is pretty quick and it doesn't mean it can't happen, but he was a GA at Colorado as well at one point. So, you know, there's that, that, you know, that, that tied into it. Um, but. As of this morning, as we're, as literally as we're recording this, Brett Bielema has emerged as a, as a candidate, um, for that job and supposedly is going to be interviewing for it. But I don't think, I never really bought into the fact that Avalos was going to go there. And quite honestly, like, I looked at, 
when I look at Avalos, I, I, I look at him as he's going to be a head coach. I know that for a fact. I, or I don't know that for a fact. I just believe that definitively. Yeah. And I think his star power is going to be extremely bright at the college football level. But I also look at him and think he's very smart, and he understands that maybe waiting two or three years to develop himself a little bit more and, and learn some of the, the, the craft from Crystal Ball and the blueprint that he's developed at Oregon and just having a ton of success could lead to him getting a better job in Colorado. Like, yeah, I, I get it's a power five job and it's tough to turn down if they call, but I don't even think they, they, they would offer him the job today unless they miss out on a lot of guys. But the value of waiting and especially, like you said, betting on yourself when you know that in 2020, you could have the best defense in the country and then everyone could, and, and if, if that plays out for Oregon and they get back, let's say to the Rose Bowl in, in 2020 and they have the best defense statistically in the country, like Alvalos' star power explodes even more and Colorado would be like the 10th best school that, that could be potentially looking at him next season. No, and I think that that's exactly right. And, and I'm trying to remember the source of this, but I think it was one of ESPN's metrics that pro- projects Oregon's defense to be the second best defense nationally. Um, I'm, I'm still trying to find it on Twitter. I think it was FNP, perhaps. SNP. Uh, SNP. Thank you. Um, and, and that just, I think those rankings just came out over the weekend. But I, I saw that on Twitter, and, and and that was something I thought about when we were when we were planning our show and, and talking about Avalos of like. Your ability to sell yourself if Oregon has legitimately the best or one of the top three or four defenses nationally next year, um, and your ability to say, hey, I improved a defense that in 2019 was, you know, a top 10 defense nationally, a really, really good defense, one of the best in the Pac-12. And I took it to a different level, to a place where they were just absolutely dominating teams. You know, I'm, I'm still a younger coach, um, but you see the improvements I've made both at Boise State, now at Oregon, over a two-year period. I think that would be, that would to me would, over, you know, that would really, I think, in terms of what would be the most impressive for his long-term trajectory of his career, I think anything he could do at Colorado in one season, because let's be frank, it's going to be a, a re- rebuild, and it's going to be one you're going to have to pull off really fast because you're not having that much time here really to get everything situated. I, I, I think staying at Oregon and maybe leading a defense to a historically good season, getting all of the eyes on you um, at Oregon in terms of like, hey, if, if they go out and they beat Ohio State, in that second game of the season and you go, man, you know, Justin Fields is maybe the best quarterback or one of the best quarterbacks in the country. And he just couldn't really figure out this Oregon defense. People are going to be talking about Abelos for a while. And if it carries into conference play and into postseason play, um, and the year finishes up and people are like, man, maybe he's one of the three best coordinators in the country. That's where you jump on the irons hot if you're him. And all of a sudden, you know, every off season, there's going to be a handful of major power five jobs that open up. I think you get a much better opportunity than Colorado. Um, at the end of the 2020 season with a season that we think is possible with this defense where they really make some strides. Um, it, you know, I think it's for, if you're him, it makes a lot of sense to wait it out, especially with what's potential is um, on the roster this season. Now, one other fallout from Colorado is that Rob Mullins did the right thing in not extending Mario Cristobal after that 9-4 and four season in Red Box Bowl victory. And I, I honestly felt like, he probably did the right thing after Oregon, you know, finished the regular season and and didn't extend Cristobal before the the Pac-12 championship game and even after the Pac-12 championship game even. I think he probably made that right decision. Now, unfortunately for him, it still backfires because yeah. we've seen this this past week that Mel Tucker uh 
did some negotiating with Michigan State, and they got a little desperate, and they went out and offered a coach with one year of head coaching experience and a record of five and seven, didn't make a bowl game, didn't have a winning record, and they <laughs> doubled his salary, and they made him uh, one of the top 15 highest-paid coaches in all of college football, not just the Big Ten, all of college football. He'd be the highest-paid coach in the Pac-12, and he makes now $5.5 million per season at Michigan State, and... Obviously, there's a report out there from the Oregonians, John Canzano, saying that Oregon's going to be restructuring Crystal Ball's deal and they're going to give him another, you know, a new contract and bump up his pay and whatnot. But Oregon did the right thing and they're still going to get burned because they're going to have to pay Crystal Ball now higher than $5.5 million, uh, realistically or somewhere around that ballpark because that's the going rate. And that's what's concerning if you're the Pac-12 is that Oregon is a school that they can look, they can write that check. They're different than everybody else in the conference because they have a huge, they have a couple really, really big mega boosters, most notably Phil Knight, but it's not just Knight. You know, they've got a couple other guys, most notably the other one being Pat Kilkenny that can write basically a blank check whenever, whenever Oregon needs it. But the rest of the conference, they don't have that. And most of the schools in the conference, they can't afford to pay a coach that's a middle of the road at best record wise of five and seven coach, five and a half million dollars. They can't pay a five and seven coach four million dollars. And no. that's the scary part for Oregon because let's say they do give Crystal Ball a raise and, and let's say he gives them the hometown discount, which I would kind of expect that he will. He's, he's shown he's been pretty loyal to Oregon. And I think as long as Oregon is loyal to him in terms of commitment of making the program succeed and giving them the, 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 the resources that they need, He'll probably give them some kind of a discount, but let's just say they give him four and a half million dollars. What happens if they win the Rose Bowl again next year and Auburn says, you know what? We need a new head coach. We don't like where we're going with, with Gus Malzahn and we're going to fire him and we're going to offer Crystal Ball eight and a half million dollars. Like, I don't think that's really out all that unrealistic considering the SEC and the money that they have and the, and the amounts that they pay. And the, that's where as a, as a conference, I think, the league really needs to get with Larry Scott and be like, "Hey, you need to figure this out, or you're you're gone." Because the conference is literally slipping out of Power Five status and and could become their own tier where they're not necessarily a Group of Five school, but at the same time, there's a stark difference between them and and the rest of the other other leagues in terms of money. Yeah, and this has been something we've been discussing, not for these specific reasons, not because of other conferences coming and poaching coaches away, but you start to see a little bit on the field of competition. You start seeing it in the recruiting realm as well, just in terms of the conference taking a step back and struggling. And I do think a lot of it has to do with the TV revenue. Um, the conference just isn't making as much money as a lot of the other leagues are, and you're seeing those conferences now flexing their muscles. And I still think it's ludicrous, the contract that Mel Tucker got at Michigan State. I understand the circumstances. The, the Spartans got a little bit frantic and they and they, they kind of rushed to make a deal and they basically just gave Tip Tucker whatever he wanted and that number wasn't a number that was even realistic for the Buffaloes to consider but at the same time your point remains in terms of like you know if Colorado should be able to foot the bill to keep their coach they should be able to figure out a way to do that and that's just not a reality right now in this conference and it's a different the field is different and, and, and in general just coaches are being paid a lot lot more than they used to yep. be and the price is going up for doing business, and the Pac-12 is unfortunately kind of behind times. And you're right, Oregon is going to have to ante up a little bit here, I think, to keep Cristobal, you know, 
you know, I don't want to say keep him happy, but to, to, to keep him around for the long haul. And I think it's pretty clear that that's what they want to do. That's the direction that they've kind of decided they want to go. And, um, you know, he, you know, two years of service, he's done great work at Oregon. I think we're going to learn a lot more in year three than we learned in year one and two. But um, you're right, you're going to have to pay him, and you're going to have to pay him premium wage because there are other conferences that have more money, and, and especially bigger programs that are going to, you know, it, it wouldn't be shocking at all if in a year, two years, three years down the line, one of these big schools opens up, one of these big jobs opens up back in Florida or Georgia or somewhere over there, um, and, and schools come calling. And Oregon has to be prepared to kind of match those overtures. And, and I think they will be. I think you're right. I think if at a certain point, the threshold probably becomes too too great for them to bear it, and they have to make a change. And but that's just again that that would be disappointing. I think if you're a fan of this conference to see if this becomes a regular trend where you have young kind of up and coming coaches that are potentially the future of the conference that just come in and get swooped away from other leagues because you can't afford the price of doing business. That would be very frustrating. It hasn't hurt Oregon yet, but you're right. This is something that they have to get sorted out. And uh, a new contract makes a lot of sense for a variety of reasons, but I think one of them has to be. Um, just this thing we're talking about right now where the price of business has been going up and up and Oregon better get with the program or they could be like Colorado in a couple of years here where they just get outbid and they don't have much of an opportunity um, to respond. All right, let's take a quick break. You're listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the Yachts and Audibles podcast. You're listening uh, to Matt Perry and Eric Scopel here. And we're talking now Oregon basketball. Big weekend for both the men and the women on the hardwood. Uh, the men were at home. The women went on the road down to Southern California. And let's start there. Uh, top 10 matchup between the Ducks and the UCLA Bruins, which was played out Friday night on Valentine's Day in, in a game, Eric, that there was honestly like a little bit of a buzz building up to it. Like, oh, here we go. Top 10 showdown. There's gonna, uh, we're going to see Oregon on the road. You know, college basketball is always a sport that you're, you're better on the road than, or better at home than you are on, at home, uh, on, on the road, excuse me. And yet Oregon goes down there and they didn't necessarily finish the game all that well. No. But nonetheless, they, they walk out of Poly Pavilion with an 80 to 66 victory. Ruthie Hebert literally was just unstoppable. 30 points, 17 rebounds. She missed just five of, of her 19 shots from the field. Uh, she had six offensive rebounds, just insane number there. Sabrina was her her usual unbelievable self, 18 points, seven rebounds, eight assists. She had a steal. Um, 
got really balanced scoring from Minyan Moore, Satu Sabli, who each had nine, and then Aaron Bowley had, or Taylor Chavez, excuse me, had, had eight points and probably not the best overall finish. I mean, UCLA no. scored, I think, six more points than Oregon did in the second half and uh, fourth quarter, you know, they had five more points than what Oregon did. So not, not the best finish there, but nonetheless, they, they walk away with a good victory and then, Sunday afternoon in in Los Angeles against the Trojans, it was just a bloodbath. Oregon won that one, 93 to 67, to get another impressive victory in a game in which Aaron Bowley scored 25 points, Rufy Hebert had a double double with 22 and 10, Sabli Sabli had a double double with 18 and 10, and Sabrina Ionescu had a double double with 12 points and 13 assists and and seven seven rebounds, and it just overall just a, a butt kicking that you we would expect from from an Oregon team. Just quickly on Friday, um, you're right. We we ha- we were expecting this game to be really competitive for and for good reason. I mean, UCLA <laughs> enters seventh in the country, lost two times all season, never at home, and yet midway through the third quarter, you look up and Oregon's up 26 points, and actually late in the third quarter too, with just two minutes to play, they're up 26 points. Like we established last 12 minutes, not their best basketball. Oregon State or UCLA goes on a bit of a run there to, to make it more com, you know competitive. I don't think anyone who was watching or following the game was ever really concerned about the final outcome. Oregon, it was a 10-point game with two to play, so I guess maybe you started to kind of creep into your head there. But at the same time, Oregon was in complete control the whole way. And it becomes the deal right now where there just aren't a lot of teams that can compete with Oregon right now. You know, I don't think we've seen – I mean, the only team that's really, really been there with the, with the Ducks since that Arizona State loss – is kind of Oregon State a couple of times. And those games were both, you know, you look at the final margin, 9 points, 12 points. They weren't quite that close. They were both more like 15 to 20-point games that got closer late because the Beavers just pushed and pushed and pushed and kept playing and kept playing and kept playing. And I'm not saying Oregon stopped trying, but to the Beavers' credit, they, they stuck with it, and some teams haven't. But there, there hasn't been a team, and Oregon's played some of the best teams in the country, some of the absolute best teams in the country, teams that are ranked in the top 10 right now. And they just don't, teams just aren't capable of sticking with them. And, um, you know, Friday's game is a good example of that. And even in a game where Satu Sabali, maybe the team's most talented upside player, I don't know how you want to describe it, but a very, very good player, doesn't really, not really a big impact. You know, struggles to shoot the basketball, uh, struggles to kind of maintain possession a couple times, has a couple of costly turnovers. Um, and yet they win by 14 points, and, and the game's never really that close. And I think that just speaks to where this team and program is at right now. They have four conference games left, one against Stanford um, a week from tonight, and that game is going to be the big one. The other three are all against teams that have poor records in conference play. I think those are going to be blowouts against Cal and Washington, Washington State. I even think that game with Stanford, based upon what we've seen recently, I'm going to be, I'm going to be honest, I'm going to be surprised if that game – is closer than 10 points. I really will. Uh, you know, I mean, Stanford barely beat Colorado. They needed a, basically a half-court shot to win there, and, and, and some kind of things broke their way late against Colorado. Um, they're not playing at the same level as Oregon, who just absolutely, you know, punched Colorado in the face and beat them by about 40 points a couple weeks ago. Um, you know, this is an Oregon team that's playing at a different level, and, and you know, I know we're going to ha- you know, have a week again here where they're going to have another top-10 showdown with Stanford. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm going into it expecting the game to be particularly close based upon what we've seen, though. This team just seems like they're playing and performing at a different level right now. Yeah, Oregon sits 13-1 and in conference play. Stanford is second in the league at 12-2. and And then UCLA is 10-3 and for third. Arizona is fourth at 10-4. and Essentially, if Oregon 
sweeps on the road this weekend, so, or if they can get a they can get one win and Stanford loses once in in the conference uh, during this weekend, Oregon's essentially going to wrap up the, the league. I mean, it almost become impossible for them to lose. And you said it though. USC, they, they play Stanford and on Monday at six o'clock. It's a game on ESPN, Big Monday. I think that's their, what their third time this week, this season. Excuse me, that they've played a a Big Monday game. But yeah. mm-hmm. you just look at the scope of of the schedule and Arizona. You know, go back to when was this? January twelfth. They played an Arizona team that was ranked, and then they played at home against Stanford, uh, who was third in the country at the time. And then a week later, they played. Back-to-back games against Oregon State, who was ranked in the top ten, and they had two games uh, on the road against Utah and Colorado that who that were not ranked opponents. But then UConn, Arizona, Arizona State, UCLA, and then USC, Cal will come up, and then Stanford. You know, nine games over over about a stretch of six weeks where they have played. Teams, nine teams ranks inside the top 25 and one, two, three, four, five, six of those games will be against top 10 teams. Just, I don't know. I can't recall a, a time where another, any basketball team has played this tough of a stretch and has been this dominant. It's pretty impressive to watch. Uh, seeing that Stanford game will be one to watch next on Monday as well, a week from today. Now the men's side, this is where it, it's literally just, it's, it's nuts. I mean, we talk about how like the 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 women have in the conference have just so many good teams, and that, that you know there's so many top twenty five teams, so many top ten teams, and whatnot, and it, it it's impressive. But Oregon's kind of going through everybody like they're not ranked. Um, on the men's side of things, it's it's nuts. You have Oregon and Colorado tied for first place at nine and four, and just half a game back sits. Arizona and Arizona State, and then one game back and in, in, in fifth place is eight and five UCLA and eight and five USC, and literally just one game separates you from being first in the Pac-12 to being sixth in the Pac-12 on the men's <laughs> side. Um, it, wow. It, it, the, the stretch down the road is going to be insane, and Oregon got a huge weekend from them at home claiming a 68-60 win over Colorado on Thursday and then on Sunday night against Utah uh they they destroyed the Utes 80 80 to 62 um this was a weekend where they were must win games to keep pace with Colorado and it sets them up with an opportunity to go down to the desert and Dan Altman was pretty frank about it like he said we haven't played our best on the road we haven't played really all that well on the road since Michigan in early December and it's going to take their best effort to do it. Now, if they go down there and get get a sweep, which has been very difficult in the league this season, it's only happened three times. Uh, a team has gone on the road and get a road sweep for the week. If they can be the come the fourth, it basically almost ensures yeah. Oregon at least a share of the Pac-12 because they would deliver some knockout blows to Arizona and Arizona State. They have the they would have the tiebreaker over Colorado, and the Buffs have to play the LA schools, which could very well be a loss involved in one of those games. So this is a huge pivotal week for Oregon on both sides to 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 get the conference championship and and to continue their seed placement. What was maybe the most impressive thing you saw against Utah on Sunday? Obviously the three point shooting 
stood out, especially how quick they got to it. But what, what did you see from Sunday that was really encouraging for you? You know, I think I look at Pritchard's kind of become, you know, the mainstay. He's, he's always going to be the guy for, for Oregon. And, and looking at that game against Utah, um, I was really pleased with Will Richardson. He's had a really good week. He's had a really good couple of games now for Oregon. He had 18 points, six assists, six rebounds against the Utes. He had 21 points, nine rebounds against Colorado on Thursday. And he's kind of really bounced back after about a two-week stretch where he was just not very good. And Oregon scored 80 points in a game in which Chris Duarte did not score a single basket, yeah. um, single point. He, he he was 0-3 on, on field goal attempts. He played – 28 minutes, he didn't score a basket, and this is Oregon's leading, second leading scorer at 14 points per game, and he, he's dealing with a broken finger on his shooting hand, and he's playing through it, and so you kind of understand like why he's not shooting well, but nonetheless, it's, you can't make it an excuse, um, and, and he's struggling right now, and he scored zero points, Oregon still scored 80, uh, Chandler Lawson played just six minutes, had foul trouble in the first half, and then like, in the first minute or two minutes of the game, the second half, he got poked in the eye really bad, never came back. Altman said he's going to be okay. He said he's probably going to be really red and, and irritated the next day or two in the eye, but he should be okay. He said he saw him in the locker room. He seemed to be okay, but Oregon basically got nothing from two of their three, star- two of their five starters scored 80 points and they did it against a team that's got a lot of size. They got a lot of length. They're not necessarily the most athletic team out there, but. Really good showing offensively from Oregon. And then most importantly, um, they got, what is that, 25 points off the bench, which is huge. Addison Patterson, again, had a big game, 10 points, three three assists, two rebounds, two block shots. He had a pretty impressive block, pretty impressive dunk. Uh, Anthony Mathis had nine points for Oregon. Francis Okoro probably, this doesn't, register for many people out there on when you look at the box score, but this is probably the one for me that stood out the most. He played 18 minutes. He, I, he, he was, he was called for just one foul, which has been an issue for him in conference play. He scored six points. He had two hook shots. One came in a, a critical clutch situation when Utah was starting to make a run. And another one came during that same time period when Utah was keeping it close. And then, he got the ball with two or three seconds before the shot clock expired. Hook shot made it really good for his confidence to see him kind of see the basket go through, uh, see the ball go through the basket a couple times, get some rebounds, make some defensive plays. Okoro's going to have an important piece on this team and getting him into that position to play well down the stretch is going to be big for this duck team. You mentioned Okoro. Um, the front court, that was a big thing we talked about coming into this week and kind of how that would sort itself out. And obviously they didn't have him last weekend um, against Oregon State. He was back in Nigeria. Good to see him back. And Folly Dante, another guy I know we talked about a couple of times. Are we just writing off the rest of his season at this point? I mean, are we, what, what are we expecting from him? I know there's been some optimism recently about him coming back, but kind of yeah. what's your feel What's your feel with that story? I mean, I, I still feel like anything you get out of him is just a positive, an unexpected positive, that you're not – you, 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 that you can't rely upon just because he hasn't practiced much with the team. He, he doesn't have much experience with the team. Um, and it, it's just difficult to, you know, it's just difficult to do when you're at that level um, and without really pl- practicing, a ne- practicing a ton. Now, that being said, after Thursday's game, Altman said that 
and Valadante has started to get back into practice before the, before the Colorado game. It was, you know, we'll see. He hasn't been cleared yet. Yeah, Now after the game, he said that he did t- he did participate in warmups and did their you know did their shoot around type thing that's closed off to the public. Um, so it sounds like he's starting to at least do the early p- portions of practice. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if he doesn't play this week. And if he does play again this season, it, his, his first game back is at home against Oregon State. Give him a one-game situation, a home game. Don't throw him out there on the road because his confidence might get shot if, you know, if he doesn't play well and whatnot, you know, maybe, but maybe he, maybe he's good to go. Maybe something happens this week where they feel he's confident and they, and they throw him out there because they, they need every rep that they can get out of him to get him ready for the tournament. But I don't think, Regardless if he comes back or not, I don't think from what we've seen and for what we've heard in terms of practice time on the court and whatnot that you can rely, you can go into every game, say, hey, we're going to get blank and blank from Infale Dante. It's going to be a game-by-game basis and trial and error. Throw him out there if he succeeds, keep him out there, and if he doesn't, you know, pull him off and, and you just roll with, with what you got. And unfortunately, that's just kind of what where Oregon's at right now. One one other thought here, Matt. You tweeted this out before we did the podcast, just about Peyton Pritchard and his standing in terms of the all-time scoring record at Oregon, which is currently held by Ron Lee, one of the Kamikaze kids, 2,085 points. Pritchard right now, 1810, so that's about 275 points behind Ron Lee. Ducks have five regular season games guaranteed. They have a conference tournament game guaranteed, and, and I think we're all in agreement, an NCAA tournament game guaranteed. So that's seven guaranteed games. Probably an upside of more like 10 to 12 games. What do you think, Matt? I know you, you posed this question on Twitter. Does he have enough minutes? Does he have enough opportunity to get to that, that school record? And um, First thoughts on that, and then secondly, what does it say about his career that we're even able to have this discussion? Because I think a couple of years ago we would have been uh, shocked that he right. was even going to have this opportunity this late in his career. Yeah, Ron Lee has 2,085 career points to his name. Pritchard needs 275 to get there with five regular season games remaining, a Pac-12 tournament game guaranteed, and some kind of postseason tournament game. I mean, I'm assuming it's the NCAA tournament, but they're going to need to win games for him to have a chance. They're going to need to win, you know, they're going to need to be able to play in the Pac-12 championship game. And quite honestly, they're going to need to probably get to the final four for him to have some kind of a chance to have this record unless he just goes nuts and has, you know, multiple 30 point games down the stretch. But cause 275 over, let's just say nine games, 10 games. That's a lot. That's a lot of points. So he's, he's going to need to get to the, to the final four. He's going to need to play in the conference championship game, the Pac-12 tournament to do it. I think it's very realistic that he enters the top three. There's a good chance he passes Luke Jackson to become number two. Luke Jackson has 1,970 points. Anthony Taylor is third with 1,939. I think Taylor, you you can feel very confident in saying Pritchard will beat Taylor. And I think you can feel pretty – I don't know if you're definitively confident, but it's kind of like that 50-50 level where, yeah, it's probably it's probably better than, than likely, but it's not for certain that he passes Luke Jackson. Um, but nonetheless, it, I think it's a pretty remarkable career, and it's one in which – Honestly, Pritchard could could go down as, you know, a top three scorer in the league, and also finishes as the most assistant in in a career at Oregon as well. Which you you look at 
the guys that are, <clears throat> excuse me, that, that are in the top, top five in points. You've got Tuan Porter, uh, Greg Ballard, Anthony Taylor, Ron Jack, Luke, Luke, Luke Jackson, and Ronnie Lee. And most in a career for top five and a, top ten for an assist. Terrell Brand, Mike Drummond, Terrell Brandon, Fred Jones, Luke Jackson, Jonathan Lloyd, Aaron Brooks, Pritchard, Ridnour, Lee Wilkins. So really, you've got Luke Jackson and Ronnie Lee are the only guys in the top five in scoring for Oregon and that are also in the top ten for career assists. And, and Pritchard's already the leader, the all-time leader for assists. It's a pretty remarkable stat that you're one of the school's best players ever to score the basketball, but then you're also the school's all-time leader in helping other guys score. That That's just insane to me. Also going to be, and I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but I'd imagine the all-time winningest player he in is. program history, too. Is he already to that point? He already is there. Okay, I, I figured he was. Yeah, no, you're right, though, in terms of the combination of the assists and the scoring, and, and we should say that there's a chance – Probably a decent one. He gets to about 700 career assists, which is a huge, which is a huge number over a four-year college career. And my guess here, um, this is my my little prediction I'm going to make. I think he's. I don't think he's going to catch Ron Lee. I think that's going to require some incredible heroics, slash Oregon making a tournament, probably both, uh, a really deep tournament run. But I think I could. I would be surprised, and I'm going to predict he's going to get to 2,000 points. Um, that's 190 points, and he's like we said, he's got. Seven guaranteed, probably going to be closer to ten. That means he's averaging right around. If he plays ten more games, he just has to, to score at a season average of nineteen and a half, and he gets there. I, I, I'm going to say he passes Luke Jackson um, and becomes the second Oregon player to score two thousand. I don't think he gets to two thousand seventy-five, though. I think that's um, that that's an asking an awful, awful lot from him. Something that that's also kind of gone under the radar for him is that he's turned into a really good defender. And he's kind of already always been one. He has 206 career steals to his name. He's going to get there by the end of the year most likely because Kenya Wilkins has the career record of 213. And Pritchard came into the year second already. And so he's, he's really seven steals away from tying the record, eight becoming uh, the school's all-time leader in, in steals as well. And, and it's just... It's just a remarkable stat and, you know, just another one of those things for him where he continues to find ways to to cement his name in, in Oregon history books. And I don't think people really understand how much he's improved defensively. And he's not – I'm not going to sit here and say he's a defensive player of the year candidate because sure. he's not. But – he is probably one of the better on-ball guard defenders there is in the Pac-12 and in the country for his position. You know, one one thing we're, you know, in a couple of weeks here, you know, Sabrina Ionescu and Ruthie Huber are going to finish their careers at Oregon, and there's going to be a lot of talk about Sabrina and, and just the incredible career she had. But I think Ruthie Huber gets overlooked a little bit because she's had to play with Sabrina, and obviously a lot of the success she's had has been because of Sabrina. But those two always be linked together. But I'm sitting here thinking that I just wonder if Pritchard and Sabrina's careers didn't directly overlap. They both enrolled in 2016, started their careers at the same time, and played simultaneously, both been stars of their you know respective programs for that time period. I, I think Pritchard gets a little bit overlooked just because he happens to be playing at the same time as Sabrina does, and Sabrina just draws so much attention, not just nationally, but locally. 
Um, you know, and I think if, if Oregon women were not at this level, um, if they were still a top 25 team, but not quite this good, if Sabrina hadn't come here, and of course no one wants an alternate universe where she goes to Washington or something. But I'm just saying, you know, hypothetically, I, I think if Pritchard has this career and there's not a female counterpart who is stealing a lot of the attention, I think we're having a lot more conversations um, like the one we're having right now about his career and about how fantastic he's been because he does get overlooked a little bit just because there happens to be a player in the women's side that is drawing so much national attention. I wonder if you agree with that, Matt, to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it. we're trying to, to take away that Sabrina shouldn't be <laughs> right getting the accolades that she has. But, yeah, you're, I can see what you're saying. Like, literally, he's playing the same time frame as the best player to ever play women's basketball at Oregon. And maybe, honestly, the best player to ever play women's college basketball like yeah yeah i don't know if it's in the conversation maybe that's something we talk about down the road um i don't i'm not as familiar as the women's side as you are but i think if she wins a national championship she's gotta at least be in the discussion at minimum as being the best women's player ever because, or at least in the modern day of women's basketball, um, and from maybe the 1990s till now, I, I don't know. Um, I just, I have a hard time seeing someone that has better stats and, ha- and has had a better impact and has won so much aside from national championships as Sabrina has. Yeah, that's- so, yeah, I, I, I could see. I mean, we're kind of going down the rabbit hole here, but that's fine. For sure, Pritchard has had to go up against that. Uh, and on top of that, you know, there's the fact that he also dealt with a Justin Herbert on the football side. Yeah. And um, a Royce Freeman on the football side. That that factors into things as well. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I certainly think that he's probably gone a little underappreciated just because of the other athletes that are on campus around him. I don't know how far down the rabbit hole we're going to get, but just one, just one last thought on just Sabrina. And now we're kind of pivoting a little bit, but just I, I, the one thing she needs to do is win a championship um, in terms of her her career legacy. Uh, statistically, she's about to, and I'm trying to coin this phrase. I don't know if this makes sense or not, but she's about to become the first triple quadruple player. Triple. <laughs> so that three three different categories where she has um, you know four digits worth of so two thousand points, one thousand rebounds, one thousand assists. She's very close to becoming that. Um, no one's even. Close to that, really. I mean, Courtney Vandersloot, who also played, actually, I covered her at Gonzaga, but she's the only other 2,000, 1,000 assist player. Um, there are a few players in that 2,000, 1,000 rebounds, but getting all three is not something anyone has done. Statistically, you could put her numbers up, and it'd be hard for anyone in the country historically to match up. It's just the national championship stuff. She's going to be a two-time national player of the year, a three-time Pac-12 player of the year, a three-time conference champion. Um, you know, the list goes on and on. Um, at least three seasons in a row, she'll make the Elite Eight. I think we can say that pretty confidently. They'll get at least that far this year. Um, but she needs to win a national championship, and that's the last thing kind of for her legacy. And if she does pull that off this season, maybe picks up a couple more triple doubles, gets to that triple quadruple status, which I'm going to keep saying until it picks up, and maybe it won't pick up, and then I'll just sound like an idiot. But I already do that enough myself. But I, I, I just think that the one thing she needs to do is win a national championship, and, and then you really open the conversation. All right, that's going to do it for us here on the Ops and Audible's podcast. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe. Make sure to subscribe and like us on iTunes, Stitcher, 
pod, you know, podcast, being whatever uh, platform you use us uh, to listen to on. Give us a review. Subscribe there as well. Subscribe to DuckTerritory.com using our $1 for your first month promotion. After that, it goes to $9.95. But with the pay increase, you also get CBS All Access for free, 10,000 shows, live sports, movies, all on demand, all commercial free. So do that as well. For Eric Scopel, myself, Matt Frame, thank you. And you've been listening to the Austin Audible's podcast. Adios, amigos. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.